Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available... On digital, Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in the wilds of Connecticut, this is Obscure Season 2, Frankenstein. I am your host, your friend, your compatriot, your compadre, your literary mansplainer-in-chief, Michael Ian Black. Happy, as always, to be with you as we await. Uh, What are we awaiting? Well, we are awaiting the voyage. The voyage to the North Pole, the voyage that our narrator, Marlowe, is embarking upon. He has just hired a crew. He's cooling his heels there in Russia. In Gosh, it's either Archangel or Archangel. I don't know. A-R-C-H, Angel. You'd think Archangel, right? But then somehow that doesn't sound right. Archangel sounds right. Archangel sounds more like uh, a DC comic. And frankly, you know, this thing reads a little bit like a DC comic so far. Or I should say DC comics read a little bit like Frankenstein since DC comics come after Frankenstein. It's got a little bit of a graphic novel-y flair to it. Here you've got the brilliant autodidact Marlowe leaving home He's wealthy, he's uh, motivated, he is the son of tragedy, which is to say, you know, I think he's an orphan at this point. And, you know, he's he's making his way in the world. I mean, it's a little bit Bruce Wayne-ish. And like in a, a, a DC comic, or I guess a Marvel comic, but it, it feels a little more DC to me because it has a sort of darker tinge to it. He seems maybe troubled, he seems lonely. There are forebodings of evil afoot, and there he is, cooling his jets in some mysterious port city up there near the Arctic Circle. He's hired a ship. He's hired a mate 
and a master, and he is in want of a friend when last we met Marlowe. He was describing his crewmates to this point, a kind of elaborate description, which doesn't seem that relevant to the story, but we did conclude on one of the descriptions previously, a story about the master of the ship, a person of excellent excellent disposition, remarkable for his gentleness and the mildness of his discipline. All right. So he's talked a little bit uh, about those guys, and now we return to the letter. Uh, and he, he's been complaining a little bit, you know, because he's lonely, and he's up there, and he doesn't know what's going to happen, and he's excited, but he's scared. You know, this is an origin story. This is Bruce Wayne's origin story, or Elon Musk's origin story. I keep comparing him to Elon Musk, but maybe the better comparison is Bruce Wayne. I don't know. I don't know. You do not suppose because I complain a little or because I can conceive a consolation for my toils, which I may never know, that I am wavering in my resolutions. Those are as fixed as fate, and my voyage is only now delayed until the weather shall permit my embarkation. The winter has been dreadfully severe, but the spring promises well, and it is considered as a remarkably early season, so that perhaps I may sail sooner than I expected. I shall do nothing rashly. You know me sufficiently to confide in my prudence and considerateness whenever the safety of others is committed to my care. Well, somehow I don't believe this. I shall do nothing rashly. Come on. We don't have a book if you don't. Marlowe, don't have a book if you don't. What are you doing, Marlowe? Why aren't you behaving more rashly? We don't have a book if you don't. So he's talking about his prudence and his considerateness whenever the safety of others is committed to his care. You know, it just seems like we are already somewhat down the road to hell. We know with what that is I cannot describe to you my sensations on the near prospect of my undertaking. It is impossible to communicate to you a conception of the trembling sensation, half pleasurable and half fearful, with which I am preparing to depart. Let me tell you something about a troubling sensation. Folks, folks, let me tell you about a troubling sensation. I described to you the clearing of brush in my on my property. I have described to you that I am I was considering going camping. And if you listened to the bonus episode, you heard the first part of my camping adventure. All of that to say, I have contracted upon myself what those in the medical community call contact dermatitis. This is not an unusual condition for me to have. If you don't know, uh, contact dermatitis is just when you touch something out in nature to which your body is allergic and it breaks out into uh, itchy rash. Usually it's poison ivy, like that's what people associate it with. I don't think I touched poison ivy. I touched something. 
I get this when I weed. I get this when I'm just out in nature. So the theme for this season remains man versus nature. I was out in nature, either clearing the brush or going camping, and thought I had done pretty well, but nature will have her revenge. So upon my forearm, uh, on my left forearm, and upon my left uh, torso, sort of waistline and lower, not quite in the groinal area, I have upon my person, contact dermatitis, uh, an itchy, flared, red rash. It's itching as I talk about it. That is a troubling sensation. However, one of, and dare I say, the only upside of having contact dermatitis or a poison ivy is the troubling sensation can be transformed into a trembling sensation by one means and one means only. And you probably, if you have ever had this, know what I'm talking about. You get into the shower and there's something about hot water on this rash. The hotter, the better. Where it is almost like, it's almost a sexual feeling. You put scalding hot water on contact dermatitis, it will make you weak in the knees. I don't know what that is or why that is, but it feels fucking fantastic for about, you know, 30 seconds, 45 seconds, something like that. I'm just standing there in the shower with the water turned as hot as I can get it. And I'm trying to only let it touch the rash part and I'm I'm removing from the water all other parts of my person which can be contacted by the scalding hot water because it is after all scalding hot water but for the part that is the dermatitis part touching it I mean I can't it's the weird it's a unique sensation it feels like I imagine like a hit of heroin feels or something. It just washes through you in the most delightful, trembling way. And better, when you remove your body part from the scalding hot water, it kind of, it feels numb. The itching is gone. It's a temporary relief from the feeling, but it can last for quite a while. Uh, And so... When I have this rash, which I hate, part of me is excited because I know that about once a day, I will put my rash under this unusually hot water and it will create a trembling sensation, uh, half pleasurable and half fearful. So it's the same thing. So I don't know if this guy has poison ivy or what his deal is, but it's the same thing. You know, sometimes man versus nature, nature's kind of winning, but then you get kind of a sexy feeling when you, it's not really sexy. I can't even really describe what it is. It's like an endorphin rush. It's a weird endorphin rush that is comparable 
to a sexual feeling, but isn't a sexual feeling. But sexual is the closest I can get to. So that's what he's feeling, with which I am preparing to depart. I am going to unexplored regions. And then this is a little quote, the land to the land of mist and snow. And then, ladies and gentlemen, we have our second footnote. Oh, I love footnotes. As you know, I'm, ch- I'm turning to the back of the book, uh, The Land of Mist and Snow. It's a Samuel Taylor Coleridge quote from The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. Okay. Oh, interesting. Very interesting. The Land of the Ancient Mariner published in 1798, right? Okay. We know Frankenstein published in 1818. Okay, right. But letter two, and you know these letters are dated, but they don't, she, uh, she never gives the exact date. It says uh, uh, March 28th, 17 dash. So the Coleridge quote feels like a little bit of an anachronism because the author then would have had to have read this quote there in Archangel it would have been enough in the popular vernacular that he could quote it, the land of mist and snow, so that his sister in England would understand it. But it was only published in 1798, but he's writing it. it so the, the, the only possible date that this letter could have been written, if the story is to make sense, is 1799. I feel like I've just solved a literary mystery. Nobody else has thought of this. I alone. 1799. I'm now dating this letter. It is the winter of 1799 turning over into the spring of 1800. Either that or Mary Shelley done fucked up. And I hate to be so blunt about it, but Mary Shelley, you done fucked up. Or this just takes place in a parallel universe where the Coleridge... Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner came out a little bit before 1798. Uh, so I'm going to unexplored regions, to the land of mist and snow, but I shall kill nor I shall kill no albatross. Therefore, do not be alarmed for my safety. Or if I should come back to you as worn and woeful as the ancient mariner. So 1799. I'm gonna date it, I'm gonna sign it, I'm gonna stamp it, I'm gonna date it. Baby, this letter is winter 1799. You will smile at my allusion, meaning the allusion to the ancient mariner, but I will disclose a secret. I have often attributed my attachment to my passionate enthusiasm for the dangerous mysteries of ocean to that production of the most imaginative of modern poets. So this is interesting now because he's calling... The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner as his inspiration for a long time. So I'm going to double check the date of its publication. So I've opened my uh, research machine, The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. I'm going through the ancient, the ancient Mariner. Hmm. The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner is the longest major poem by the English poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge, written in 1797-1798, published in 1798, in the first edition of Lyrical Ballads. So, I'm sorry, Mary Shelley, you done fucked up. We can no longer safely date this letter as winter 1799, not if 
and I will quote again, not if I have often attributed my attachment to my passionate enthusiasm for the dangerous mysteries of ocean to that production of the most imaginative of modern poets. I'm sorry it doesn't line up. I feel like I should just throw the book away at this point. Because I'm, I'm only in the second letter, and already I'm ripped out of the universe of Frankenstein. How sloppy, Mary Shelley. How sloppy of thee. What are we to do? How are we to resolve this anachronism? We can't. We simply must ignore it and proceed. But strike one, Mary Shelley. Strike one. All right, I'm going to take a little break. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Back at Obscure, let's read on. There is something at work in my soul, which I do not understand. I am practically industrious, painstaking, a workman to execute with perseverance and labor. But besides this, there is a love for the marvelous, a belief in the marvelous, intertwined in all my projects, which hurries me out of the common pathways of men, even to the wild sea and unvisited regions I am about to explore. So those unvisited regions he's about to explore, we know are not just physical, but we don't yet know the full manifestation of what that phrase will come to mean. But to return to dearer considerations, shall I meet you again after having traversed immense seas and returned by the most southern cape of Africa or America? I dare not expect such success, yet I cannot bear to look on the reverse of the picture. Continue for the present to write to me by every opportunity. I may receive your letters on some occasions when I need them most to support my spirits. I love you very tenderly. Remember me with affection 
should you never hear from me again. Your affectionate brother, Robert Walton. Well, that's the end of letter two. Um, You know, it occurs to me that there is some double meaning in all of this. The unvisited regions I am about to explore, and should you never hear from me again, uh, from me again, Robert Walton, but, and then if you change the emphasis slightly, which I just did inadvertently, and it says, should you never hear from me again, Robert Walton, meaning there could be a chrysalis through which Robert Walton passes to become Frankenstein. I don't know why I am so uh, married to this idea of Walton being Frankenstein, Frankenstein being Walton. That may not be the case at all. Um, But I like the idea that Walton transforms into Frankenstein. I also recognize that even if he does not, the Robert Walton who is undergoing this journey will never return. There will be a different, at least, Robert Walton at the conclusion of Frankenstein, uh, one way or another. My arm is itching. It's sympathetically itching because I was talking about it. Like, it hadn't been itching until I started talking about having contact dermatitis, and I want desperately to scratch at it, but that won't help anything. What I need right now is a pot of water. The hotter, the better. Letter three to Mrs. Saville, England, July 7th, 17- although we know now that that is false. Uh, but let me just see how many months have passed since. Okay, so the last one was March 28th. This is July 7th. So a few months have gone by. My dear sister, I write a few lines in haste to say that I am safe and well advanced on my voyage. This letter will reach England by a merchantman now on its homeward voyage from Archangel or Archangel. More fortunate than I who may not see my native land perhaps for many years. Well then turn back. Marlo, get in your little dinghy and paddle home to England. Stop being such a crybaby about it. It's your choice. I am, however, in good spirits. What are you crying about, Marlo? It's your own choice, you big baby. Get back in your dinghy and paddle home if you're so upset. I am, however, in good spirits. My men are bold and apparently firm of purpose. Nor do the floating sheets of ice that continually pass us, indicating the dangers of the region towards which we are advancing, appear to dismay them. We have already reached a very high latitude, but it is the height of summer, and although not so warm as in England, the southern gales which blow us speedily towards those shores which I so ardently desire to attain breathe a degree of renovating warmth which I had not expected. No incidents have hitherto befallen us that would make a figure in a letter one or two stiff gales, and the springing of a leak are accidents which experienced navigators scarcely remember to record, and I shall be well content if nothing worse happens to us during our voyage. Yes, I said voyage. It struck me as a fun thing to do, and so I did it, but more notably, there's a a bit of a 
cock of the walk to Marlowe's letter because he says, uh, you know, this the stiff gales, the springing of a leak are accidents, which experienced navigators scarcely remember to record. Now, what we know about Marlowe is that, you know, he's been on some whaling ships and he has gone out onto the high seas and what not, but he is not an experienced navigator. He is eight and 20 years old. This is his first voyage, voyage, as a navigator himself. And so he's kind of showing off a little bit. He's got a little flair to him, a little kick of the heels, a little, I don't know, jazz hands about it. A little look at me, Ma. I'm in a show. Adieu, my dear Margaret. Oh, so it was not at all bad for me to say voyage because the very next word is adieu, my dear Margaret. Be assured that for my own sake, as well as yours, I will not rashly encounter danger. I will be cool, persevering, and prudent. But success shall crown my endeavors, and the emphasis is his. Wherefore not? Thus far I have gone, tracing a secure way over the pathless seas, the very stars themselves being witnesses and testimonies of my triumph. Why not still proceed over the untamed yet obedient element? What can stop the determined heart and resolved will of man. My swelling heart involuntarily pours itself out thus, but I must finish. Heaven bless my beloved sister, R.W. Well, there is the question right there, right in the paragraph above. What can stop the determined heart and resolved will of man? I'll tell you what, fucking poison ivy. Poison ivy or some such contracted dermatitis will stop the resolve and determination of man and or woman because it's just so annoying. But that really is the thematic question, right? What can stop the determined heart and resolved will of man? We don't know yet. We all know the answer to that question perhaps for ourselves, because we have all been thwarted on our own journeys hither and thither. And we pick ourselves up, we dust ourselves off, we continue over the uh, untamed yet obedient element. Well, that's the thing. He's being cocky here. He's calling the element, meaning, you know, the ocean, but really nature itself, obedience. And we know that is not the case. We know in our hearts as readers and as citizens of the world that that is not the case, that nature in the end is disobedient and malicious. Well, malicious, I guess not. Uh, Indifferent, perhaps. Indifferent to our own sufferings. When I was out there in the wilds of Connecticut, the literal wilds of Connecticut, doing my own camping excursion on the Appalachian Trail, I remember I was seated upon a rock resting, and I did a lot of resting because I am a weak man. I looked down at my feet, and I'm off the trail a little bit. I'm in some uh, random, obscure part of the woods. You know, this is, uh, hikers come through, but, you know, I'm off the trail a little bit. 
Like this is just this is just some unremarkable three foot square of the woods. And I look down at my feet, and what do I espy but a snakeskin shed some distant date in the past? Not a big snake, you know. Couldn't tell you what kind of snake. Some kind of snake. There's copperheads up there. I don't know if this was a copperhead skin or not. There was no snake attached to it. It was probably a, a, a snakeskin that had been sloughed off during the molting season. But it just occurred to me as I was staring at the snakeskin, desperately trying not to pass out because I was dehydrated, that um, like everywhere we are, every single centimeter of our being is occupied by a force greater than ourselves. And I don't mean that spiritually. I mean that all of life breathes in and breathes out around us. There are stories untold everywhere we look. A snake had passed through there and shed its skin, theretofore unwitnessed, perhaps, by the human eye. But a whole, you know, a whole life had been lived right there in the spot where I was sitting. An unremarkable moment, right? An unremarkable event, but full of life, full of everything. Ants scurrying around, beetles, leaves falling, everything happening right there where I plunked my sweaty ass and probably got poison ivy. And, uh, you know, it was just a moment. It was just a tiny moment out there in the quote-unquote obedient element. There's nothing obedient about it. And our Walton is yet to learn that nature is a bad motherfucker. Oh, geez. I realized something that I'm doing here. I keep saying Marlowe. I've been doing it throughout the episode when I mean Walton. I mean Walton. Marlowe is the uh, nom de plume for the writer of the introduction to the book, right? Marlowe is either uh, uh, Mary Shelley or her husband, the poet Percy Biss Shelley, and they signed it Marlowe. We don't know why. Walton is the name of the narrator of the book. So forgive me for my stupidity, but when you hear Marlowe think Walton in this episode, I apologize for my continued dumbness. Um, all right, I'm done. Uh, we've, we've set sail. We're up there in the higher latitudes. Ice flows are going by, and yet we are buoyed by the summer winds, which take us ever closer to our fate. What will happen to RW? We'll find out on the next hair-raising episode of Obscure Season 2, Frankenstein. Obscure Season 2, Frankenstein is produced by Robin Lynn, Jennifer Brennan, Mary Shimkin, and myself here in the wilds of Connecticut where I record and elsewhere. Original music by Craig Wedgren. If you enjoy this podcast, please go to 
Apple Podcasts and drop in some stars for us. Why don't you write a kind review? Why don't you? It helps. How does it help? I have no idea, but it makes me feel good. 